Just occurs to me, you made reference to kind of a bird being on your glove, but it might be really interesting if you could describe what it's like to have a raptor fly to your glove, if you could just describe that experience. Oh, wow. Well, there's some people that find it alarming to see a, a, a hawk flying with those big, strong feet and their curved obsidian talons. Yeah so near your face, um, particularly since at one time, our ancestors, our hominid ancestors, were hunted and killed by large hawks. So I can see some people being disturbed by this, but for me, it was unbelievably thrilling to have a creature like this choose to come toward me. And even though hawks are really, all like all birds, they're light creatures. They're, they're full of air sacs and their feathers actually weigh more than their skeleton. But because the hawk is, is coming towards you at speed, when it lands, it smacks on your glove with surprising force. And you can feel, too, the squeeze of those strong feet. It doesn't hurt, and you're wearing a glove, so, you know, the talons aren't going to hurt you. But you're aware of the power of that creature. Yeah. And in the book, I wrote that it was like holding on your hand an eclipse or a lightning storm or a waterfall. Well, there's another analogy you made that I want to get into in a sec, but let's get one more call involved for now at least. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Ty Montgomery. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, go okay. ahead, please. Um, well, yeah, I totally appreciate the guest's experience and passion, but maybe she can address the fact that some of us have a different take on falconry, and she probably knows this, but uh, yes, a hawk may be a feeling hunting machine, so why not let it be just that? without oh, human control or manipulations. Um, because raptors or hawks may not enjoy being confined for days or exercised in a, a run of, or, or trained solely at the will of a human. And in some cases, eggs are stolen from nests. There's videos showing that. They don't take them. They're not supposed to take them all, but... But people do do that. So uh, uh, cannot deep love for the hawks occur or any raptors occur without being controlled and c confined b by a human, just allowing them to be free. Thank you. Thanks for your yeah, call. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate the caller's sentiments there. And she's absolutely right. Of course, we can. You don't have to. Um, have a hawk on your your fist to love them. Um, I was I faced this when Nancy asked me to be her apprentice because to be a, an apprentice you have to capture a bird of the year in New Hampshire. You have to get a wild hawk who's living free, a youngster, and capture it and take it into captivity against its will. And I thought, good God, could I do that? But then she told me that. 80% of young raptors, which is the age class that you have to take, you have to take a bird that was born that year in the fall on migration, 80% of those birds die that before they reach their first birthday. Most falconers, when they catch that, um, that red-tailed hawk, has to be a red tail, has to be a bird of the year, most of them let that bird go. And the other thing that, that I discovered is no matter where you got your hawk, at any point when you're out with your hawk, if you are letting it fly and letting it hunt, it can leave you forever. It has free will to leave. And they don't have the Stockholm Syndrome that keeps so many you know, people with abusive spouses. They will just 
up and leave. Um, they, they don't depend on you for food. Um, they don't depend on you for anything. It's just the young birds that benefit when we, when we take them into captivity. And what she says, too, I mean, she's absolutely right that there, there are bad falconers out there. There certainly are, just like there's bad parents and bad dog owners. Um, but falconers, as Nancy pointed out, have had a lot to do with the restoration of animals like the peregrine falcon uh, to the wild. Those were raised in captivity by falconers who, who knew because of a 5,000-year-old history of people hunting with hawks. They knew how to raise these birds and they knew how to, to train, help them learn how to hunt and then release them. Mm. And without falconers, that restoration would not have happened. Um, so while I totally appreciate what she's what she's talking about and I'm grateful that she she brought it up yeah that was um, what Nancy told me really uh, really made a difference in my my understanding what what falconry when it's done right like everything else when it's done right um, it can be a, a really restorative wonderful partnership and like the man who called a little earlier finding that you know he he had hawks who lived totally in the wild who chose to have him and his dog as a, as a hunting partner yeah um, that's what falconry in its full meaning really is, that the bird chooses a multi-species um, partnership. Yeah, interesting. So uh, much to how this works and how those connections are forged. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Cy Montgomery, the author of many, many books. Most recently, The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. We're going to take another caller, and then I have a question that I think kind of in some ways follows up what you were just describing in the wake of the uh, previous caller's question. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Simon Montgomery. Hello. Yeah, is that me? Yeah, please go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah, my name's Mike. I have several stories about hawks. But okay, let's hear your best one because we're running short on time, I'm afraid, Mike. So let's Well, hear, the let's... best one is a friend of mine was out walking his dog, and he found a hawk laying on the ground. He picked this thing up and took it home. Well, he put it in his bedroom, laid it out on a towel, and all was thinking about what he was going to do with it. Well, it was a goshawk, and it had knocked itself out while it was, you know, flying low along the ground. Mm. Uh, it awakened, and he had to close it into that room and call for help because it just kept attacking him every time he went toward it. Wow. Oh my God. The second oh my God. one is I open my back door and I have a pool with a screen enclosure. Mm -hmm. and when I open my back door, there was an explosion of black. What it was was a red-tailed hawk had chased a blackbird right into the pool enclosure. <gasps> and right as I opened that door, he hit that bird. Of course, there was just feathers everywhere. Wow. But I had to get the hawk up. And I used a net, and I waited for him to calm down. I used the net. I set him out in my backyard, and he just stood there and looked at me, and I looked at him. He was probably just gathering himself, and then he took off. And it was just a wild experience. Wow. I had to put a vacuum cleaner out to clean up all the uh, feathers from the blackbird. Uh, I'm sure. Sweep them up. Wow. Well, Mike, yeah. thank you. Thank you for calling, and thank you for those stories. I know you probably have others, but we do need to move along just because we're right. running short thank on time. Thank you much, and I appreciate your guest. Thank you Bye. so much. Bye-bye. So, Cy, kind of going back a little bit to just before Mike's call and sort of responding to the previous caller's thing, can you talk about... Uh, 
or, or maybe more to the point, elaborate on some of the personal conflicts that you felt as you were moving into the world of falconry. I mean, it just seemed like there were some real struggles that you articulated in the book about uh, what you were doing and kind of just your your, your overall sort of yeah, life. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. I mean, I was crazy in love with, the, with being with these birds. And when Nancy asked me to be her apprentice, um, one, I, I needed to find out, you know, could I take a bird out of the wild? Well, if I was going to give it a head start on a better life, I could do that. Okay. But then the next question was, I mean, everyone was telling me, look, you know, you, you, you can be disabled. Your hands are, are small. Your skin is thin. This is, so I didn't, that didn't bother me too much. But the two big stumbling blocks, which caused me to eventually not be an actual apprentice, one was I had chicken. And if, if you're an apprentice, you have to take that hawk and build an aviary called a muse for it and care for that hawk every day. Well, that hawk, he's got eyes like a hawk. He's going to notice all my, my chickens and want to kill them. And I love my chickens. They, yeah. I knew them ever since they were tiny babies and slept in my sweater and were little egg-shaped pieces of down. And then the other thing is, I travel a lot for my work, and sometimes I'm gone for months to some jungle or desert or cloud forest, and who's going to take care of the hawk then? Yeah. Well, my, my husband did not want to do that. He said it would be like tending a loaded gun. So as much as I wanted to be Nancy's apprentice and as grateful as I was for the honor of being asked, um, I did not do so but continued to take lessons from her. And I, I still, I'm friends with a hawk up the street right now um, who belongs to Henry Walters, who's a, a poet and translator and, and master falconer. So I still have these birds in my life, but not on our property and not in my care. Yeah. No, it's it's clearly something that you have to be kind of all in or really probably not going to work. Yeah. It's, it's kind of scarier than even getting married. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll let you and your husband uh, take that discussion uh, further. But uh, so, Sai, we're sort of nearing the end of our time here, but it's uh, it's been great as always. Some other things I was hoping to get to, but we got some great calls uh, and questions and stuff instead. So we'll, uh, we'll we'll come back again. I'm sure talk another time. But we've been speaking with Sai Montgomery again. Her newest book is The Hawk's Way: Encounters with Fierce Beauty, and her website is Sai S Y Montgomery dot com, and she's on social media as well. Sai, it was great pleasure speaking with you again and uh good luck on the book which again obviously i really enjoyed and again it's a short quick read for anybody thinking hey maybe i could do, read this yes you can you can read it in an afternoon or a quick evening oh thank you so much duncan i love talking with you and i love your listeners and your callers this was a blast oh great always. thank you so much si. thank you well, take care bye-bye now in a moment, I'll speak with Lainey Jones, the singer-songwriter whose new album, Stories Up High, arrives next week. And not coincidentally, she plays an album release show at Tampa's Hoochin' Hive next Wednesday, May 18th. In her childhood, her companions included kangaroos, wallabies, and other exotic critters. More on that in a moment. Right now, that we're going to step into the comedy corner with this piece practically custom-made to follow the conversation I just had with Simon Montgomery. And that it's about falconry, or at least a falcon. This is Andy Ritchie with a piece called Balthazar. In today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. This is funny, though. Uh, somebody in my neighborhood a couple weeks ago posted a sign on a telephone pole for a lost falcon. <laughs> like the bird. They're like, we lost our falcon, help us. I'm like, I can't. I'm not the beast master. I can't summon wildlife from the sky. It's like... Yeah. 
Like, if you lose your dog and you post a sign, like, yeah, there's a chance you get your dog back. But if you lose your falcon, it's gone, dude. Forever. Because it can fly and it hates you. It's like going to be hanging on the woods one day like, God damn it, I really miss that hood. Nobody puts a hood on me out here that makes me think I'm asleep. That sucks. It's like, these people are never going to get their falcon back. I was like, well, maybe they'll get their falcon back. Because they're very smart when they made the poster. They put a picture of the falcon on the poster. Yeah, which is very helpful if you're the one looking for it, right? Because that way you don't show up at their doorstep with the wrong falcon. I think we've all been there before. It's incredibly embarrassing. For all three parties involved, really. Falcon's just like, oh, this is not my house. I don't know why the falcon's Jewish in this joke, but it's a Yiddish falcon. And then underneath the picture, they put the falcon's name, Balthazar. And there was a $300 reward for him, too. I guess they're really expensive. So I'm like, whatever. I got nothing better to do this afternoon. I start walking up and on my block like, People are giving me spare change. <laughs> Poor kids touched in the head. That was a piece called Balthazar in today's Comedy Corner from the late, great Andy Ritchie, taken from his album King Dingaling. Now it's time to speak with singer-songwriter Lainey Jones, whose new record, Stores Up High, comes out May 20th, and she plays an album release show locally here at Hoochin' Hive next Wednesday, May 18, one week from today. So when she released her previous album, Rolling Stone dubbed her an artist you need to know, and uh, she grew up with animals in a way I think you could safely say you and I did not. This is Lainey Jones on Talking Animals on WNO. Good morning, Lainey. Good morning, Duncan. Wow. No one's ever that enthusiastic speaking to me, so that's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. I just pumped to be here, pumped to be talking about animals, one of my favorite subjects. Cool. And creatures. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to get into that in one sec, but just first, congrats on the new album, Stories Up High. I know it's not out officially till next week, but Friday, specifically the 20th, but I was uh, fortunate enough to hear it ahead of its release, and I really think it's terrific. So that's great, and of course, locally here in Tampa, we'll be doing Hooch and Hive show next Wednesday, May 18th, so that's the music side of things. But as you noted, the focus of this show is animals. And I understand you grew up amongst some unusual ones. Tell me about that. I did, yeah. Before I was born, my parents uh, found some wallabies in Connecticut. Uh, so, yeah, there was, we had wallabies. Uh, they ended up switching to the kangaroos, which are, you know, large creatures. So they're going to be a little more friendlier. Uh, and we had ended up having uh, the largest albino mob of kangaroos in the world at one point, and we had, like, 30 of them. Wow. And also, they also had, like, other, you know, fun animals. Like we had uh, miniature donkeys, um, cynic foxes, kawada mondays, uh, yeah, well, goats. Uh, that's, you know, not as, not as rare, but we yeah. did have the largest. Like, I grew up in Mount Dora, Florida, and we actually did pull out the largest female alligator in the state of Florida in my backyard because she, like, started, some of the goats started to, disappearing because you know we got the goats originally because we live kind of on a swampy marsh area and you're not supposed to like you know mow or anything so in order to kind of keep it clean goats eat everything so wow. we have some goats out there but uh they are definitely starting disappearing we're wondering if some people were barbecuing them or something but it ended up the alligators were yikes wow 
Well, so tell me, uh, what, what are, uh, I mean, there's, uh, what you just said raised so many questions, but let me just jump in with one. What, what are kangaroos like, like in terms of personality and temperament? What, I mean, most of us haven't hung out with the kangaroos. Oh, they're awesome. Like, they're, they're seriously one of the sweetest creatures. I'm sure Australian people wouldn't think that. Uh, but, yeah, no, we had one kangaroo. Her name was Sydney. Uh, she was retired from the Sydney Zoo, uh, and... I would go out there. I knew her since I was, like, a baby. So she, whenever time I would go out into, like, the area, the big area where the kangaroos would hang out, we call it the Rupin. Uh, when I'd ever go out there, you know, it's like 10, 12, 11, she would come over to me, start hopping over, and she'd, like, hug me because they have arms and, like, kind of raccoon hands. And she would come over and hug me and start cleaning me. Wow. And if she had a, a baby in her pouch, she would, like, drop the baby out so we could, like, play with it and say hi and I mean I I was always from a little kid uh grabbing so my my parent my mom would bottle feed the kangaroos uh so they'd be friendly and know us and stuff like that and they need to be ball fed all the time so uh I would but I would go and like we made these like pouches that they sewed up and stuff and I would bring the kangaroo with like me in bed and just kind of be snuggling and, and hanging out so they're they're really sweet wonderful that's really cool, and it's kind of surprising in some ways. Uh, maybe it's just the product of the way some of these were raised and bottle-fed by your mom and stuff. But the, this, describing, like, the one there that had a baby in its pouch and letting you sort of get close and hang out, I mean, that's so counterintuitive the way most moms, especially wild animal moms, are with their babies. If any, if anything is coming close, it could be perceived as a threat. Oh, absolutely. So with the Phoenix boxes, because... They, the ones that we had from them, they're kind of like, I don't know if they're feral. I, I don't know how my parents got those. But, yeah, if you didn't actually rescue the babies, like rescue, I mean, term loosely, but uh, they would actually eat their, their young because they, they didn't, you know, I feel, sound so crazy and weird about that. But, like, the babies, though, were, like, the sweetest creatures, though. And it's just because, like, they knew you and they knew that, you know, you weren't going to hurt them and, and all that. I mean, like, animals are just like people, really, in that sense, you know, if wow. it's uh, your product of your environment. Yeah. So, Lainey, looking back now, how would you say that fairly extraordinary childhood with all those uh, interesting and unusual animals, how did that shape you in any way that you could point to now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it definitely made me a more sensitive person, I think, just because with animals, you know, they they aren't speaking, but they are speaking in, in their own way. Yeah. Uh, and you really have to listen and be open to that. And uh, so I think it's, it's really made me a person that I think to believe more in, in the magic of the universe. And, yeah. and, uh, and also, too, I mean, uh, when I was in like going into kindergarten, I guess, you know, they ask kids, the doc, you know, just to make sure, you know, all your marbles are there going into to school and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, I like the you know, doctor was asking, you know, oh, you know, what, you know, uh, a roof and a fence. Or, or, or like a pond or whatever. All my anim- my answers were very animal related. Yeah. And then like when he was like, "What is a fence?" I was like, "It holds in my kangaroos." <laughs> and uh, he learned. <laughs> I like I did get. I I was sent to get tested at like a mental facility yeah. for like a week to make sure I wasn't like <laughs> something's not right with Laney. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. 
And uh, here's some, probably a bigger stretch, but any elements of all this that may have cropped up in one way or another in your music and your songwriting at all? I mean, actually, funny enough, on my, my first record and, and writing, too, you know, uh, I told that story about my goat getting eaten by alligators. Okay. And, uh, you know, snakes and also, too, uh, like, four panthers and stuff. Yeah. So I have a, I have a song called Midnight Snack. Okay. That's uh, <laughs> about my goaties getting eaten by creatures of the night Yikes. here in Florida. So, uh, yeah. Well, that's that's, that's certainly more, more, more direct than I was anticipating, but that's definitely a direct product for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's cool. Well, Lainey, we just about kind of reached the end of the time, but just want to say one more time, your brand new album, which again, I really, really like, is Stories Up High. It's out next Friday, May 20th. Just prior to that, next Wednesday, a week from today, May 18th, you're at Hoochin Hive right here in Tampa, and your website is laney-jones.com. People can find out more or look at other tour dates if they're not in the area and want to see uh, where they can catch you and catch up with some of your information about music, if not animals. So, Laney, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. Yeah, thanks so much, Duncan. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Thanks, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Coming up on WNF Music Kicks Back In with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m. A glorious three hours of music, followed by Robin Hooper with another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show, at the moment, is the prize for naming that animal tune. I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. Let's name that animal tune... On Talking Animals on WMNF. If you can name that animal tune, we'll take your guests off air just after the show because we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast and more. Meanwhile, Scott Elliott's up after NPR News Headlines. We'll see you next Wednesday on Talking Animals. Thanks.